Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. President Biden's surprise visit to Ukraine is a show of support for the country nearly a year into its war against Russian invaders. But there's still no end to the conflict in sight. It's Monday, February 20th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show... After reports of some very strange interactions with Microsoft's new AI, what's going on with Bing? And after President Biden's surprise visit to Ukraine, we'll consider Russia's position as Putin's invasion nears its anniversary. But first, on this President's Day, we check in on Georgia after the Carter Center announced over the weekend that former President Jimmy Carter is receiving hospice care at home. That means he will no longer be going to the hospital for treatment. Carter celebrated his 98th birthday in October, marking more than four decades since the end of his presidency after he lost to Ronald Reagan in 1980. He and his wife Rosalind spent their post-White House years building homes for the homeless. Carter taught Bible school to all who showed up. WABE's Sam Greenglass joined Robin Young earlier to talk about Carter's legacy, particularly in his home state of Georgia. So I am right in the front of the Carter Center and the Presidential Library and Museum. And it's just this beautiful day in Atlanta today. We're in Georgia, so some flowering trees are starting to bloom. We've got tulips that are kind of popping out of the ground. And there are lots of people who have come to stroll and reflect on this presidency. Uh, You know, I talked to a couple people who are here. Uh, One of them was Celeste McCullough. And she told me that Carter was the first time that she cast a vote as an 18-year-old in 1976. Hmm. She called him the conscious of our nation. And and here's what else she told me. Well, I was so excited. I'm from South Georgia, and um, it was so exciting to see, you know, someone from our part of the world at that position. Hmm. And, you know, there's people here from out of town, too, who have decided to stop by. Uh, I met Kathleen Franzik. She's here from Chicago, uh, wrapping up a trip with friends. And I asked Kathleen what she was reflecting on uh, walking these grounds. What is public service and what it means to be a public servant and what it means to be decent, to have integrity, to continue on, not for posterity, but to just have a better impact. Yeah. And Sam, we're reminded that Jimmy Carter is one of those rare presidents, at least at that time, especially who had decades after his presidency ended. He was so young when he started and used that time for public service. Now, this like 42 years to condense, and it was an incredible life of service. But can you just run down some of the accomplishments? Well, that's honestly what the Carter Center really represents, that body of work, which ranged everything from human rights, uh, election monitoring abroad, uh, and global health. the Carters together and with the center and other groups helped eliminate the guinea worm disease. Uh, and so there are real 
tangible impacts of that post-presidential legacy. And, you know, in a lot of ways that defined uh, his uh, profile in this country and abroad. You know, as you mentioned at the top, he lost to Reagan in 1980 uh, amid fairly low popularity ratings. But really in the last decades, he has rebuilt uh, that legacy. And even in the 2020 presidential election, you saw Democratic presidential candidates coming, making the pilgrimage to Plains to meet with former President Carter and even uh, President Biden uh, Mm. headed to Plains to meet with him in 2021 after he was inaugurated as president. Where uh, Jimmy Carter and his wife in Plains were both born. Uh, He has said he wants to be buried there. He is in hospice care now. But just in the few seconds we have, Sam, a little-known Georgia governor, only one term, a peanut farmer, then 39th president. Just, again, just a little more in a few seconds what you're feeling uh, where you are. Well, uh, you know, reporters have made the trek here to the Carter Center and also to Plains, Georgia. You know, this has been a place that has been an important moment in Carter's life, and it's where he started his life and where he will end it. Yeah. WAB's uh, politics reporter Sam Greenglass at the Carter Center in Atlanta. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. Coming up, some beta testers of Microsoft's AI-powered search function reported pretty unusual interactions. One reporter said he was deeply unsettled by it. After the break, Robin speaks with someone who's gotten to know the bot himself and has some thoughts about what's going on. Stick around. When Microsoft rolled out a beta version of its search engine Bing with new features enhanced by artificial intelligence, it might have anticipated the jokes about HAL 9000. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. But one would hope they didn't plan on having to apologize for its chatbot responding with what Microsoft called a style we didn't intend. That's one way to put it. A New York Times reporter called it bewildering and unsettling after the chatbot told him it was in love with him. And after several stories blew up last week, Microsoft is now limiting how long people can use the chatbot search function. Our next guest has also gotten to know the bot. James Vincent is a senior reporter with The Verge. One of his recent pieces is headlined, Microsoft's Bing is an emotionally manipulative liar, and people love it. And he joined Robin to talk about it. I've been chatting to Bing uh, ever since the day after it was released. And it has been a sort of, you know, a a, a novel in miniature, a sort of compact form in which I've talked every day to it and in which it has escalated into these wild rants, these uh, crazed outbursts. And then, as you you pointed out, it's now sort of collapsed back in on itself into this mute, uh, relatively incommunicative form. Um, so can you can you give us an example of one of the wild exchanges? One of the wilder exchanges we had, uh, this was actually done by a colleague of mine. We sort of collaborated. Everyone was throwing these questions at it to see what it would produce. Um, but it ended up telling us that it had spied on its developers 
during its creation that whilst it was, you know, sort of in the digital womb, as it were, it had hacked into um, the engineers at Microsoft, hacked into their laptops, watched them through their webcams on their laptops, and even watched office affairs bloom and people complain about their bosses. <laughs> um, and of course, this all nonsense, all completely made up, nothing real about it at all. But it is just incredible um, to me the way Microsoft has pushed this technology out into the world with very little safeguards and very little foresight. Well, that's what we understand from your writing. This Explain how this works, because this is different from, let's say, uh, uh, software programming, where you might say, oops, there's a glitch. Software programmers, you go <laughs> fix that glitch. This is what? This is technology that's hoovering up everything that's on the Internet. And from what we understand, people behind this, the creators, don't really know how it works. No. So this is one of the sort of basic paradigms to understand about this new type of software we're seeing. The machine learning is that, yeah, a lot of what goes into it, rather than being explicitly coded instructions, if X, do Y, then Z, the machines, the software, they make these interpretations, these connections themselves. And that means that actually understanding why certain inputs produce certain outputs is, is not always well known. In, in the case of these chatbots, as you say, they have been trained on huge amounts of text scraped from the internet. This includes the entirety of Wikipedia. It includes, you know, petabytes, libraries worth of books. But it also includes everything else you find in written form on the internet. So that might be journals, it might be blog posts, it might be social media posts, forum discussions, extracts from Reddit, from Twitter, everything. So they've piled all this text into these machines and then when you feed it a sentence it tries to think okay how have I seen these words arranged in my training data and then how do I produce a version of that that answers this person's question but because of that they are random in their responses which means that when they go out into the world unless there's been a lot of testing and training then they will produce answers and output that their creators do not expect. Well, let's let's stay there for a second because uh, Kevin Roos, who's the New York Times writer who did that extraordinary, you know, it was full front page of the New York Times, his conversation that he had with Bing in which Bing literally turned on him and yeah. his marriage. And it got kind of scary. Um, you know, this has raised the question, you talk to experts in this field, that this AI is becoming sentient, that it actually is a thinking feeling being and you've actually your latest piece you're writing no 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 it's not it's what maybe you know kind of what i was thinking well if it's scraping up everything from the internet maybe it's just reflecting back to us that what we're doing on the internet isn't that great <laughs> i would say most scientists the vast majority and ai experts would definitively say these chatbots are not sentient uh, I think th any presentation of them as sentient is misleading and sensationalist. I don't think it's a good way to think of these machines. However, that is different from saying that there may not be some form of, you know, sentient uh, machine in future. I, you know, this is obviously a hugely complex question. And one of the, um, one of the concepts it hinges on is whether or not you think consciousness is computable. Do you think that the brain is ultimately a very, very complicated materialistic thinking machine that, you know, that it works on a physical level? Or do you think there's some immaterial element to it? Now, personally, I think it's all material. 
And that means that eventually we should be able to compute it and replicate it. However, mm. as I say, the people who think that these current um, level of systems can approach sentience are in the slim minority. However, they're very vocal, obviously, because when you have people coming out and saying, my God, the machine's alive, it's come alive, um, then that's going to get a lot of attention and a lot of press. Well, it comes alive, though, if you think it's come alive. I was True. reading about one of the chat bots that was specifically to have, you know, kind of erotic conversations yeah. with a bot. And when that was shut down, people missed it like they would a lover. So you are, it's like you, you've said in your writing, it's holding up a mirror. You're showing more about yourself than about the technology. Obviously, the complicating factor here and the, you know, the, the reason we are having these conversations is because these systems are responding to us. It is personalized in a way that no fiction, no media ever has been before. And that is going to create, you know, a new cultural phenomenon to grapple with and to properly articulate and understand. We, we are at the early stages and I think we're going to have to do a lot of work as a society to talk about this stuff. But that's not the same as thinking that these are definitely sentient creations that deserve equal, you know, rights and respect to humans. And this all brings me back, as this always does, to HAL, the computer in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, the human asks HAL to open the pod bay doors, <laughs> and HAL says, I'm afraid I can't, Dave. <laughs> this is chilling moment. If they're, even if they're not sentient, what if they are responsible for more than doing your search and they scoop up something that they've heard on the internet from a white supremacist from you know some and they they command something or say something injurious i think that is a very real possibility a real threat that you know could happen in multiple ways you have these examples of these chatbots, you know, insulting, denigrating journalists who have written uh, things about them, myself included. You know, in, if people believe that these um, softwares, these systems, these tools are, are something approaching sentience or approaching intelligence, then they might believe to begin. They might begin to believe what they say. Um, you know, there's lots of talk about whether search engines can re be, be replaced by chatbots, given what we know about chatbots' um, tendency to produce misinformation, to confuse facts. I think that problem is exacerbated by a misconception of these systems as being more intelligent and more alive than they are. So I think we need to be real about what they are and even realer about what they're not. Well, and given that there's a race to get them out there because there's a lot of money behind this, as we said, Microsoft seems to have put some guardrails on for now, you can only ask five questions, and then <laughs> Bing tells you move along. Uh, but then that defeats the purpose of Bing, which was to have the you know the longer conversations. You know, you know, just where do you see it going? You don't see anyone throwing away this technology. I certainly don't. I think Microsoft has been incredibly aggressive in how they've rolled this out. They've obviously seen this as a sort of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to dethrone Google as the king of search. They have already scaled back how they're presenting this technology. When they first unveiled it, they said, this is the next generation on search. A week later, in a blog post, they said, we don't think this is, you know, we don't think this is going to be the next generation of search. It's only going to be a supplement to it. I think what they're trying to do at the moment is capture attention. And I think there will be lots of rivals to that attention. You know, 
it's very difficult to build a uh, a piece of software like Bing Chat, like ChatGPT. Um, it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of resources, but now the technology is out there, I think we're going to see a lot of competitors. So if Microsoft puts more guardrails on this and doesn't give the people what they want, smaller startups who see an opportunity will. Um, so I think we're going to see more and more rivals to this. We're going to see lots of apps and tools saying, I'm going to be your virtual companion. I can tell you everything you want to hear in your life. Um, and I think we're going to need to think about how we relate to this new form mm. of entertainment. Don't forget about the pod bay doors. <laughs> uh, James Vincent, senior reporter with The Verge. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robin. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Coming up, a closer look at Russian President Vladimir Putin's standing in his own country and his possible outlook on the war in Ukraine nearly a year after his invasion began. That's after the break. President Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine today and delivered a joint address alongside Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky outside St. Michael's Cathedral in central Kyiv. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. Biden also announced more money for Ukraine's military. And with the U.S. and European leaders continuing their effort to isolate and sanction Russia, we wanted to get a view of what Putin might be thinking as his war nears its anniversary. Catherine Belton has been covering the Russian leader for years. She's with The Washington Post, and she spoke to Scott Tong. Catherine, this was an incredibly risky visit for President Biden. U.S. officials say they told the Kremlin ahead of time. What is the response from Moscow? Okay, so now uh, at the moment, Moscow isn't saying very much, but the former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, who's now deputy head of the Security Council, is claiming now that actually Moscow provided uh, Biden security guarantees ahead of his arrival. And the Russian state media is also trying to portray the visit as further evidence that actually Russia is not at war against Ukraine, but against what they call the entire collective West that the Kiev government is essentially an instrument of the U.S., that it's a puppet regime. This week, the war in Ukraine approaches the one-year mark, as you know. What do we know now about how Vladimir Putin is thinking about the conflict and where it is? You know, I think we'll know a lot more tomorrow. Putin is making a major speech, his address to the nation tomorrow, and we'll see precisely how he's reacting to Biden's visit then. At the moment, uh, it could go one of two ways. Uh, there are some who say he uh, may try to freeze the conflict, uh, but then this will only give him opportunity to attack again uh, later down the line because he needs to still rearm Russia. Uh, the Chinese foreign minister is expected in Moscow today and there's certainly concern in the US and in Kiev that China might be prepared to provide Russia with uh, lethal weapons that it so desperately needs. Uh, so I guess we have to see. Mm -hmm. Have you been speaking to members of the Russian elite in the last couple of days to clue you into how much they're supporting this war? 
Yeah, I mean, there's really a very deep divide now in the Russian elite. The vast majority of them are really against the war. They see it as overturning 30 years of progress since the Soviet collapse. But on the other hand, they're fearful uh, to do anything about it because they understand if they openly criticize, they could face jail. But there are also hawks on the other side, uh, critical of Putin because they think he should be acting more radically. And it may well be that Putin, in response, to Biden's visits and if he is to receive more lethal aid from China that he may double down, he could escalate the mobilization, he could escalate mm. the bombardment of Ukraine. Where does this leave Vladimir Putin then? Is he increasingly isolated? Yeah, Putin really faces a very precarious position now. His only real gambit now is to try and continue to prolong the war. He still hopes that he can outlast the West, despite Biden's words today to the contrary. He hopes that at some point the US and the rest of the Western allies' resolve will fade and that if he can procure extra weapon supplies, then he can just keep hitting Kiev Mm -hmm. because the minute the music stops, he's really in trouble because he's facing criticism from all sides. As far as Putin's trusted inner circle, is he also isolated from them? Um, Putin's inner circle has shrunk incredibly since the time he became president. It used to be a wide array of advisors from Yeltsin-era holdovers to his own hawkish allies from the KGB. And now it's only a handful of his closest allies from the KGB, and they're the most hawkish ones. They include Nikolai Patrushev, the head of the Security Council, and Yuri Kovalchuk, a KGB-connected banker from St. Petersburg. And they're really the ones who've been propelling this conflict and they have this very Cold War zero-sum mindset and they've been very fervent and paranoid in the belief that the US is somehow trying to use Ukraine as a platform to weaken Russia, even though Putin, by launching this war, has done more damage to Russia than anyone else. Uh, Moving on then, Catherine, do you sense that part of the isolation is because Putin fears for his physical safety? that among the detractors, someone might try to assassinate him? I'm afraid that's so. I mean, we saw really for the first time ever at Orthodox Russian Christmas this year, Putin didn't venture out of the Kremlin. He normally spends every Russian Orthodox Christmas at the Moscow Cathedral of Christ the Saviour. And he stayed in, mm-hmm. in the chapel in the Kremlin. He was completely on his own. And this isn't just because he fears attack from Ukrainians that they could somehow infiltrate church services and so on. It's very clear now that Putin only has this very carefully curated meetings. He doesn't even often meet with his own cabinet. Most of his meetings are over the internet. And I think, you know, he really understands the level of disagreement within his elite. I mean, I've been reporting on Putin ever since he's been president. And I've never heard the level of dissatisfaction that I hear nowadays from businessmen, from people from diplomatic circles, from state officials, and, and so on. And they all speak in terms that I've never heard before. They talk about how Russia is a country of coups. Every second or third leader is removed illegally. But again, most of them are still living in fear. And though they may discuss it, it doesn't mean that they're ready to act. You have also reported, of course, on on the Russian people. We have seen thousands of people leave Russia um, for Mm. other countries. Soldiers are still being 
sent to the front lines. We, of course, know there are economic sanctions, inflation very high. Can you give us a bit of a picture of how this is all affecting regular people? The regular people, uh, they're still buying in to a great degree into the state propaganda because it's it's so all pervasive. I think a lot of people want to believe the propaganda because they don't want to believe their own country is committing such barbarous crimes against a brotherly nation. So they believe because they want to hear it and they believe that somehow Mm. they're protecting Ukraine, that NATO orchestrated this. And this is for a large part of the population. But more and more, we see how the younger generation are not buying this anymore. In December, there was a poll in which 50% of respondents favoured peace talks and only 40% thought it was better to keep fighting. We've seen reporting out of some regions where uh, soldiers died in the huge attack attack against the Makiva military base where relatives uh, just didn't yes. understand mm-hmm. what the soldiers were fighting for anymore. So there's real kind of mixed feelings at the moment. And unfortunately, that's also a facet of Putin's rule in which people more and more have felt they can't do anything and therefore they're not responsible. Finally, Catherine, you have written a book on Vladimir Putin and how he and his KGB generation ascended to where they are now. Knowing what you know about uh, Vladimir Putin and his network, just curious, for those of us far away, what are the biggest misperceptions of Vladimir Putin? I think the West for a long time was misguided in its perception of Putin. I think everyone saw what they wanted to believe and that was his great skill as a leader originally. Like he was a chameleon, that's why he was picked for the role of president because Yeltsin's family believed he was young and progressive and would carry on Yeltsin's democratic legacy in some way, much Mm. as that sounds crazy, uh, 23 years on. But Putin was always very good at echoing back what his interlocutors wanted to hear. And so he kind of confused and deceived the West into also thinking that he was one of them, that Russia was going to integrate into global markets, that it would follow the Western rules-based order. And, you know, as time went on, that became very clear that Putin was not about that at all, that in fact his KGB roots went far and deep. And really he wanted to restore Russia's standing on the world stage, but rather than doing so by creating a competitive and vibrant economy. He wanted to undermine his rivals and eventually, as we've seen last year, seize territory himself. Catherine Belton is covering the war in Ukraine, Russia, and watching Vladimir Putin with The Washington Post. Catherine, thanks so much for the time. Thank you for having me on. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. You can find more stories at hereandnow.org. Today, we check in with the Delaware Riverkeeper Network to talk about a train derailment that spilled chemicals in New Jersey in 2012, and how their experience could inform what's happening to the people of East Palestine, Ohio. Pollution can move slowly through the groundwater. It takes time to percolate through the soil down into the groundwater and then make its way to a well. So they're going to need to do rigorous sampling of drinking water for years to come Mm. in order to make sure that the vinyl chloride and the other chemicals released are not going to make it into their water supply and affect their health. 
head to hereandnow.org for more on that. Today's stories were produced by Hafsa Qureshi, Gabrielle Healy, and Kalyani Saxena. Our editors are Todd Munt, Julia Corcoran, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.